0: Giant kaiju edition. We already have a multilingual show. Well, that's about the extent of my Japanese. Is that Jap- that's a Japanese word?
1: Kaiju? It is. Yes. 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 I was yes. going to say we already have a multilingual show. What other languages have we spoken on this <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast?
0: <laughs> um. That is uh, Gabby Panicia. Uh, virologist from rockefeller university how are you today gabby
1: i am good actually very good like yesterday i had one of those days where all of the like burning myself out of both ends caught up to me and i think i slept a cumulative like 10 or 11 hours nice. and just like laid out on the couch and like watched mythbusters and ate fried rice nice. and i woke up today restored like, Absolutely. I feel energized in a way I haven't felt in months, and I think it was literally just that I haven't been getting enough sleep. Yeah. And <laughs> I I normally am pretty good about getting a lot of sleep, but my partner stays up late, and I've noticed that my bedtime has been creeping later and later and later
0: uh-uh.
1: to, like, stay up alongside him, but I still get up at the time that I have always gotten up. Yeah. So I went from getting, you know, eight to ten hours of sleep a night and being really lavish about it to, like, six. Yeah. And uh, it caught up to me yesterday, and so I, unsurprisingly, now that I've slept, I feel great. So I'm very jazzed today. Very
0: jazzed. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yes, I have that same thing. I was like, I hate that. My body still has an automatic wake up in the morning, you know, early in the morning. Although, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about. It may be my own uh, self that wakes up automatically, or it is probably the fact that my cat, Mosey, Claws me at six thirty in the morning because it's time to eat, no matter
1: what. I'm she, sure she it's doesn't a bit care. of a feedback.
0: Yeah. <laughs> where like
1: you're up and you feed her at six thirty, and then therefore when you're not up to feed her at six thirty, she will wake you up. Yeah. Which means that no matter what, you get up at six thirty to feed the cat.
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, actually right. I, I think what's happening is my I'm waking up because my body is like, We're gonna get clawed, wake up. So she has mm-hmm. totally trained me, right? Complete fight or
1: flight response. Exactly.
0: Speaking of kaiju, Mosey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I am Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker, and um, glad to have you here. Um, Special welcome, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Thank you all. Um, You really help us do this show, so thank you. Um, If you don't know what Patreon is, as I mentioned just at the beginning there with the music, do check it out, patreon.com slash whattheif. Um, our fearless uh, co pilot, uh, Matt Stanley, is not, uh, he is on assignment this morning. So, um, again, something is happening. And Matt is a historian of science at New York University. And something is happening either at New York University or somewhere in the history of science that he needs to attend to. So, we don't know what that is. We hope it's, uh, it's uh, we, we know that he will figure it out because our timeline always seems to be fine. So
1: yeah, just, I was going to say, if our timeline stays the same, we can only assume that he's done his job correctly.
0: Exactly, exactly. It's a thankless job because if he does his job right, nobody notices. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you have uh, our our if this week comes from, um, uh, is inspired by your uh, alternate career. <laughs> Side
1: hustle, what have you. Uh, side
0: hustle. I like that. <laughs> um, side hustle fiction. Uh, as How would you describe it? Would you, would you say science fiction author or would you say speculative fiction? What do you prefer?
1: I write sci-fi on the side. I mean, this is a story yeah. of like, the story that this is coming from is like giant monsters in space and gigantic robots fighting them. So I think that's <laughs> solidly in the realm of like, pulp sci-fi versus, yeah. you know, speculative fiction.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, just before we start, I want to give a shout-out to Josh in Toronto, who sent us yes. an astounding work of art uh, inspired by our episode um, in which... Um, that here? um in, in, from our, the episode that we did um, where we were uh, evolving underwater, um, I'm going through our conversation here. I was just going to read something from his note, and it's just full of back and forth between me and you and Matt and Josh, all saying, "This is amazing! This is incredible! No, it's amazing! I'm Unbelievable! <laughs> Epic! You're the best!" Um, I'll, you know, I'll read the full uh, letter, but, but we had a little back and forth. So, so anyway, Josh, Josh had. Um, Listen to this episode, and um, I had asked, as I often have over the years, five years now, I've put occasionally put the word out to you, uh, those of you who have some kind of art experience or none and just want to put pen to paper or whatever it is you do, stylus to screen, um, and draw uh, an, an image inspired by anything in an episode. And Josh did it, and it's a uh, fantastic work. Um, it is a... Uh, a scene i'll put it on the website um it is a scene of uh three kind of uh lobsters coming out of the water um uh, each of which have uh dolphins standing on them wearing helmets and it's a movie scene it's, it's hard to describe it yeah, I was mind. gonna
1: say, give him more credit than that. They're they're not dolphins. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: How would you explain? Do you want me to show you? <laughs> they're the,
1: sort of like yeah. fish and shark-headed mer people. Mer and people, I particular exactly. Fond, yes. I am so fond of the shark on the right because he's got this little smile. Yeah, he's cheesing, and I I love it. Like every time I see it, it sparks joy. Like,
0: yeah, yeah. So I I had said um, I had said to Josh, this is amazing, or um, my and it, it does it reminds me of the movie Arrival. Uh, in a way, mm-hmm. um, with the sea creatures kind of thing. And um, uh, he, Josh had said he thought Arrival was brilliant. So, again, speak, since we're speaking of science fiction, uh, I think one of the best science fiction movies I've ever seen, Arrival, um, by, directed by Denis Villeneuve of uh, Dune, later to Dune. And,
1: and based off and, a short story.
0: Yeah, and based off a great short story. Do you know what the short story is?
1: Arrival. Oh, okay. And,
0: <laughs> and the author, do you know?
1: Uh, there's two that I always get mixed up, so I got to make sure. I think it's Ted Chang.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think that's uh, okay.
1: Yeah. Let's see. Uh, Ted Chang. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's uh, not called Arrival. It's called Story of Your Life. Sorry.
0: Story of Your Life. That's good. Yes. Um, and Josh says, uh, I, I had asked him what was the, f- the exact phrase from the show that he was referring to. And he said, I think the description, the moment that he was drawing was along the lines of, we're setting up on a beach and marching out of the water. Oh, setting up on the beach and marching out of the water are heavy metal mer people blitzed out in whalebone armor and breathing bladders over their heads. Love that. I think you said that, Gabby. That was a quote from you. Uh, he says, that I sounds- use. Oh, so they weren't helmets, right? He says, I use jellyfish as the breathing bladders. So they got jellyfish on their heads as breathing bladders. Um, and he says, I don't know if that would work science wise. Could jellyfish on your head work as a, uh, to allow you to uh, extract oxygen from water?
1: Uh, I don't think jellyfish do that, but if you're just thinking of like a bubble, there you, you know, we're already stretching the truth with merpeople. people. I'm sure they could find a way over thousands of years of domesticating jellyfish to make it work.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the merpeople people will will do it. Um, so anyway, so thank you, Josh and Toronto, and we will post that picture on the uh, on the website. So getting back to speaking of science fiction, getting back to your ouvre, you have a book we've we've been plugging it for a little while. And it's about to come out or it's out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: I should say it's not my book. I didn't, you know, write a right. novel and that's what's coming out right now. Right. Uh, I have a short story that's in a compendium of short stories from Neon Hemlock Press. Um, and the book itself is called Luminous Machinations. Um, and that is, that is out now, yeah. So the pre-order oh. button is officially an add to cart button. Oh, fantastic.
0: Fantastic. So, yes, uh, um, the link is in the show notes. And also on our website if you go there, so check it out. And uh, so we're going to do do, a, do an if this week inspired by the story that, that's in this anthology, is mm-hmm. that right? So yep. uh, give us a little context and then we will, of course, before we really jump in, we'll have to you know, establish our safety protocols and announce it uh, so everyone is ready with their seatbelts fastened. So what's the context before we begin?
1: Yeah, the story takes place on this like deep state, deep space mining station. There's no other planets around. It's just a station in the vast dark of space, and among many challenges that they face, one of them is gigantic kaiju that live in the darkness between the stars, and can attack and threaten stations. And so, on the stations, they have essentially a, a group of There's a group of specialized workers that are called dragon killers, and their job is killing kaiju. So
0: before, what is a kaiju for those who don't know?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Godzilla's a kaiju. Kaiju is like a giant monster, basically. So if you've seen like Pacific Rim, I basically did like a Pacific Rim in space was sort of the inspiration here.
0: Right, and and so kaiju is a Japanese word for Mm -hmm. monster, or they're a particular kind of monster. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I don't know. if I think it just means like a giant monster. Like, I, but this is I thought a it, great I thought time it, where I wish that we had Matt. Yeah, exactly. I thought that it came from
0: gods who lived under the sea uh, or things like that.
1: that. I don't know. Yeah. Apparently, according to Google. Kami,
0: oh, I think those are called Kami, but anyway.
1: According to Google, it literally yeah. means strange beast.
0: Strange beast. There we so, go. Another, I, a great metal band.
1: Strange Beasts. <laughs> That's a great one. <laughs> Understated, and I like it. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, so there are strange beasts, also known as Kaiju. Uh, yes, there are
1: strange beasts in, in space, space. And there's yeah. a group of people whose job it is to kill them. And what, how they essentially get the job is by, is sort of a in a more controlled environment, they kill Kaiju in an arena. It, for essentially like a gladiator blood sport. Um, but all of them have to build their mechs themselves, and so and mechs sort are of,
0: mechs are robots or or yeah yeah. yeah. So
1: it, this is again the giant robot killing monster story because why not? I wrote it when <laughs> I was stuck on a bus for about four hours, so it was like I I need to not mentally be on this bus, so I'm going <laughs> to be somewhere else. Um, and essentially, the the whole thing is is the the main character building their robot and eventually going to fight uh one of the monsters that's in there and you know they they brew up like test monsters so like they make their own kaiju too like for this but for the most part like the the end goal is is like actually fighting in space right but it's just kind of generally like a fun story about fighting monsters and also (laughs) self-identity
0: oh interesting
1: there's there's more into it than just, like, you know, punching monsters at the end. Like, you know, there's a narrator who has a journey, TM. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It strikes me that uh, King Kong is an American uh, story, but yeah would be a Well, kaiju. isn't there,
1: like, you know, Kong versus Godzilla? like Yeah,
0: I think you have to do that. That's too yeah, so
1: yeah. King Kong is absolutely an American kaiju.
0: Yeah. American kaiju, another. That's a reality show. I don't know. Um,
1: <laughs> it is. It's a children's like TV series. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and so now we're going to um, uh, announce the if we're going to begin the thought experiment. We're going to throw the switch. So we're going to throw the third switch, as they say in Young Frankenstein. And um, why do we? Wh- why do we have to make such a big deal? Why don't we just say and let's start our thought experiment now? But we're saying, oh, hang on a second, everybody get ready, because what could go wrong?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're about to fundamentally change reality as we know it. Currently, I mean, knock on wood, uh, there aren't any uh, deep space monsters out there that we know of. Uh, so for the duration of the time in which we're exploring this concept, we uh, we have to get our, and you know, walking through this wormhole, we have to get our, our protective gear on uh, to make sure that we don't get eaten, etc.
0: Exactly, exactly, exactly. So put on your safety goggles, put on your helmet, put on your hazmat suit, And always remember your papper as we ask, what the if? (music) Giant monsters lived in space. I think that's it. That may be the most concise if we've ever had. I think so. Kaiju in space. Flying around, floating around. Swimming? I don't know. Making, trying to make swimming motions, but it being useless because it's a vacuum? Anything could happen. Uh, yeah. So now uh, we don't want to spoil your story, right? So we're not going to do the exact. Or, or what, what are you thinking? How, how would you like to proceed? What's yeah, We starting can just start, point? start
1: talking about monsters in space. And if okay. you want, like, I, I, I'll level. I did only the tiniest, tiniest bit. of like biology for this because for the most part, I wasn't trying to write a hard sci-fi story. Like I have hard sci-fi stories and one that is being published. I can't talk about it yet because the contract's not signed, but it's, that was like a very hard sci-fi where like, there's a lot of like xenobiology and like molecular biology thought that I put into it. This is not that this is a giant robot and giant alien monster story. Right. So I'm willing to just explore more of that here.
0: <laughs> this reminds me of one of my favorite stories that Mark Hamill tells about playing Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. When they were filming, they had just filmed the uh, trash compactor sequence, whatever, they had just mm-hmm. done that scene. And then they were going to film the next scene, which whatever was supposed to happen immediately after the trash compactor. And, um, you know, he he looks at the camera and before they start, he says, oh, wait a second, wait a second. We just came out of the trash compactor. So like my hair should be all messed up. We should be a mess, whatever. And Harrison Ford whispers in his ear, it's not that kind of movie, kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, so you just, just, this is a free-for-all. Um, fa- more fantasy than hard sci-fi, as we would say.
1: Right? I, I think so, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So um, Monsters in Space. So how do we, let's say, where would you like to start? I, I have an idea that we could be on Earth and we discover how would we discover the monsters, that there are monsters in space? Would we?
1: Yes. Yeah. So it'd be kind of the thing that, maybe we should talk about what a thing would have to be like if it existed in space. Yeah, yeah. Because how, what yeah. hypothetical creature we're stewing up might depend a lot on how we detect it. That's right. So. See, that's the funny least- is, what
0: the if the, the drags you into hard sci-fi?
1: it does like now what the <laughs> f is making me like realize all the holes and all this like this monster now but at the same time i just made a cool monster um so at least based on what i kind of thought right if you've got a thing that's sort of drifting through space to maybe get from nutrient source to nutrient source yeah it's probably going to go into some sort of like hibernation state i can't i the distances in space are so huge mm. That unless this is a gigantic, gigantic monster, not like, you know, the size of the Empire State Building, but, you know, planet-sized giant monster, maybe Uh the planet-sized giant monster doesn't have to hibernate. But the monster I wrote was like building-sized. So that thing I'm kind of imagining would have to hibernate a bit so that it doesn't, you know, completely burn up all of its energy stores trying to get to a new place.
0: Right. So then, just for those who don't live in New York, let's say the Empire State Building is about a thousand feet tall. I always think of it as like a thousand foot uh, ruler. If you ever want to compare something to something, yeah. So uh, it's about a hundred stories tall. So that's how tall your creature is. Is it also? It is, is not a it hundred. It's
1: not Empire State Building.
0: Oh, it's size. not Empire. Oh, so it's smaller building size.
1: Much smaller building size. It's More like More affordable. Building. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like a three story building. This is like a townhouse. Okay, all right. Um, But again, like you know, floating townhouse monster. We can say that that you know our monsters come in whatever size they need to. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I was generally imagining that these kind of things have to essentially hibernate or go into some kind of like torpor almost. Mm. They have to really cut down on their metabolism to get from place to place. Mm -mm -mm. Um. I imagine that they do breathe, they do respire, but again, that gets shut down when they're going through space itself, uh, versus getting to a spot. Uh, and then, but I also figured it probably would work differently. So they li- um, they so live
0: in air, and then they go into they travel through space, or is it somehow they? can be I
1: imagine in space. them being fully in space. Yeah. Um, but I, I kind of figured the system could be a little different. So all of us use oxygen. And so essentially we use oxygen because it's pretty reactive. We're kind of internal combustion engines biologically. Um, if you want to like stretch the truth a little bit, uh, you can think of us kind of like engines. We we have to burn oxygen and use oxygen because it's particularly reactive. Um, I imagined radiation is going to be easier to come by in space. So maybe these guys are radiotrophic. Um so essentially, they can eat radiation. There are species Ooh. of fungi in Chernobyl um, that can do this. Really, uh, and so this is kind of a callback to sort of Godzilla, etc. Yes, um, where the monsters eat radiation. Uh, but I think it's kind of apt if you're designing monsters in space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So what? Do, so it's, it's townhouse size,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, what does it look like?
1: Yeah, so this, <clears throat> sorry, this particular creature is like three stories tall, jet black. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to remember all of the ways I described it. It's got a couple of different tails, uh, but one of the neat things about it is it just changed color in response to stimuli. Uh, so it is black for the most part to help it blend into space, um, and but it you know turns different colors when it's angry or hurt. Whoa! Because, you know, funsies.
0: Now that's something that comes from uh, octopi, right? Or chameleons, for instance, that changing color ability. Something I've always found fascinating.
1: Yeah, so uh, octopi have the ability to change color. uh, And octopi and cuttlefish uh, definitely have the ability to change color and actually skin texture to blend into their surroundings. Chameleons don't do it as much, if I remember correctly, to blend in. They do it more mood ring style. Like a chameleon will turn red, like as like a threat display. Oh, I think of course there is some element of like blending in. They stay green for the most part so that they blend in. Mm. Um, but I think some of the other colors are like threat displays, mating displays, etc. Right, Right.
0: Right. Right. Um, so uh, does the creature live by itself? Are they solo creatures or do they have? Uh,
1: yeah. Pods? I imagine these. So the thing about Kaiju, at least like traditionally they're, they're big and they are pretty solo Mm -hmm. and they can be, so each kaiju will generally be unique. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is like harkening back to a lot of, I grew up with so much Godzilla guys. It's not even funny. (laughs) So the thing about generally like a lot of the Godzilla kaiju and like, I'm sure somebody will find some example from a specific piece of Godzilla media that proves me wrong. But for the most part, there's generally like only one of a creature or like two so like I think there's like two Mothra larvae at one point. Um so I kind of imagine like each one of these things is rather unique. Um yes, biologically that makes less sense if there's only one per species, but um yeah, I kind of imagine they were pretty asocial, yeah, single creatures.
0: I think from a narrative standpoint, if I may say, um it helps it helps us have pathos for the uh for the creature, which we, we might have anyway, but sort of by making the, the fact that they're lonely, you know, kind of adds to the, uh, that makes them more complex than just straight up evil. Um, like a horde, if a horde, like in, in Independence Day, um, the, you know, a massive mothership full of, you know, I don't know, a billion aliens <laughs> attacking the earth or in Mars attacks. And they just move as a horde. Um, they're less sympathetic somehow then these stories of the soul, like King Kong, you can think of King Kong at the mm-hmm. end, you know, you're sort of, you feel bad for him. Um So uh, they, oh, I mean, here's a fun thing. Did you think about how they evolved? How, how would creatures come to live in space?
1: Yeah, so I admittedly did not do the most of that. Yeah. So like I said, I was like, let me just make giant monsters in space. Um, I thought about how they get around so they have, like, a jet propulsion system where they oh. puff out radon.
0: So oh, well, tell like,
1: us about that. <laughs> it's it's not complicated. It's literally just, like, they, they will puff. Like, you know, they essentially run dark between planets. Uh-huh. No metabolism, no warmth. They're just, like, puffing out the occasional spurt of radon to give them thrust. Um, and what and is then, radon?
0: Tell us what radon. All I know about radon is it shows up in your basement.
1: It's a gas. I went with it yeah. because it sounded cool. And if I remember correctly, it's... Is it radioactive or something like that? Like,
0: yeah. Well, that, or it, it yeah. It's it's not healthy. It's, yeah. If, if if there's too much of it in your house, you, you have a problem. Um, there
1: were again some things I did not in the interest of science fiction, but in the interest of old science, pulpy science fiction callbacks.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But th- as far, oh, go ahead.
0: No, I was just gonna say I love this idea of them running dark.
1: Yeah. Well, I I read a lot of sci-fi. But, you know, it's all, like, ship-based sci-fi. <laughs> and so I definitely did do a little bit what, of what,
0: that It's based on defecation? Uh...
1: Ship. Ship, <laughs> Phil. <laughs> I was ship. like, wow. That's
0: really <laughs> – how did you bet, like, trashy sci-fi?
1: <laughs> I meant that they're all in spaceships. That's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Uh... Oh okay. yeah, so spaceships can run dark. When
0: the automate at the end, when I when we're finished recording the show, the website that we use, Riverside, gives us an uh, an automatic transcription. So it'll be interesting to hear what the AI, how the AI interpreted that. It probably got it correctly. Ship.
1: Yeah, I. I well, that said, I, I assume maybe it was me, and I just I maybe I should <laughs> pronounce my consonants a little better. Um, <laughs> but oh god.
0: So it's ship-based. Ship, you read it's, a lot of ship-based. So also like Babylon 5, I'm guessing, right? Didn't they have the living expanse. ships? The, no, I mean, have, the Expanse. Well, like Babylon 5 had a living, the, the ship was alive that they were in. Wasn't that Babylon 5?
1: Oh, like it's biological?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot well, of like Battles, literature like that.
1: Yeah. Battlestar Galactica, the ships are alive. They're like meat, kind of. Or at least like the... The, oh, the Cylons. Yeah, the Cylons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not not their ships. In, in the Cylons.
0: new Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. newer, absolutely.
1: The one that people watch.
0: Yeah, the one by <laughs> Ronald Moore. It's very good.
1: Very yeah,
0: good. Um, I once got to meet Michael Reimer, one of the big one of the main directors for that show. Incredible. Who directed? I think cool. probably some of the when you're talking about since we're on this uh, the this, episodes featuring the Cylon ships. There was a famous one called uh, Scar or something like that. And I think mm-hmm. one of Michael Reimer's episodes. It's one of the best episodes in the whole show. Anyway, really going off the rails here. Um, yeah. This is what happens when Matt is not here. I think maybe he's having, I, you know what's happening? Right now he's having trouble correcting the timeline. And we're yeah, just getting so We're just, everywhere. We're just
1: <laughs> all over so the place. Maybe I So maybe I can try to bring us back. I'll, yeah. I'll try to channel some Matt. Bring it in. Um, essentially, we have large creatures out in space that try not to be generally detectable. That is a thing that would make them hard to detect from a planet if you just can't really sense them. Yeah. Um, but I'd imagine these things are something that we run into more the further we get away from solar systems, etc. Mm-hmm. So because this was set very, very deep space, not really anchored to planets, just you know stripping asteroids, etc. Yeah. Uh, I would expect that if there are these monsters, we run into them very much at the fringes of solar systems or trying to move between solar systems. I did not include anything in it, but a bit of me thought like a bit of me always thinks about communication and a bit of me thinks it'd be cool if they could communicate with each other via radio waves, Mm -hmm. in which case that would give us some way to detect them beyond just a big dark thing just came and ate the ship.
0: Right. So, okay, let's imagine we are SETI, right? We're, we're in the Green Bank um, Radio Telescope Observatory uh, in West Virginia, which is, the, I believe, the largest radio telescope in the U.S., one of the largest in the world, and that was where SETI began. And uh, I can imagine we're there with an astronomer, and we're listening, and we pick up one of these signals from a floating kaiju. What might we uh, be hearing, or did, what's, the, what's the signal look like?
1: Yeah, so I'd imagine it's one of these things where it looks different from background, whatever the background is. And this is right. where I wish that we had met because I don't know what the background RF sound of, of space is like. Um, I don't know what SETI is generally looking for.
0: Well, I, th- this I do know some, some stuff about because I've studied this a lot. Um, they're looking for patterns that are not you know, repeating patterns for the most part. So the other thing is when you say what, is, what does the background sound like, There's millions of frequencies, I don't even know, maybe you would say it's infinite, if it's an analog thing, but there's there's a vast number of frequencies. So um, sound is not just one thing, it's a a hard thing. One of the reasons SETI has taken so long to go through its search and why they say, even though they haven't detected anything, they are by no means done. They have by no means exhausted all the possible ways they might detect something. It takes an incredibly long time. So um, there would be certain frequencies you're talking about. And it's SETI. What they look for is actually there. In particular, they speculated. Frank Drake, uh, who was one of the founders of SETI, um, who created the Drake equation, if you know what that is, um, speculated that there's something called what he called the Watering Hole, which is um, hydrogen. Hydrogen is by far the most abundant um, element in the universe, and so it there is uh, radio signals the radio kind of background sound is relatively quiet at the frequency, that some sort of natural frequency that hydrogen absorbs. Um, so they said that people, A, because it's, uh, it's related to water, um, that, might be, or that might be something that other civilizations like ours feel a kinship for, but also because it's this very, very quiet part of the radio spectrum, that would be a place to broadcast signals Um that it wouldn't be a crowded, wouldn't be crowded with lots of natural noise from pulsars and you know, black holes and all kinds of stuff. Um so that's what would be happening. So so the
1: Well, that's probably a good hypothetical range. These would not be creatures that feel any affinity to water, by and large. But at the same time, why if if that's a, a quiet channel and they're talking to each other in the space between stars? Yeah, sure, why not? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a great frequency.
0: So, it, it, what's fun is I can imagine it almost being like the radio equivalent of whale songs.
1: Yeah. Which is sort of the thing that I like. Like I said, I, I didn't include it in there because, you know, there wasn't the, the space for it. Uh, but I do like the idea of large creatures being able to communicate over long distances. And it's something that we do think. You know, between whale song, we think T Rexes communicate via like infrasound. So there's clear precedent for this on Earth that big creatures will pursue these sort of like very far traveling wavelengths of communication, especially if they tend to be pretty solitary. And I don't necessarily say whales are social for the most part, like, or at least some species of whales are, but the distances between groups can be so big Mm. that they do need some ways to keep in contact if they're going to be social at all.
0: Yeah, yeah. But what might they be communicating?
1: Food sources? I'd Mm. imagine one. Um, Well, if there are ever going to be any more little kaiju running around the universe, unless they all clone themselves by, like, parthenogenesis, they otherwise have to find mates. Uh, So that... Could be one usage of the RF signal. Uh, I'd imagine, too, it would be interesting if it goes other ways. If these guys are RF um, sensitive, like they can essentially process those signals, that they're going to hear us, which is part of how oh, they start wow. finding us. Right. Um, because it's probably, you know, space is big, understatement of the year. It's hard to find things in space because you're looking for a needle in an infinitely huge haystack. Um, and if you're some creature that lives off of radiation and all of a sudden you hear chattering by some monkeys over the airwaves and they're sitting on some big reactors essentially that power their stations, you're going to want to eat that. Um, so I think that there might be a good setup for, uh, monsters following humans trail via RF.
0: I see the story coming together. They, um, it's funny because you mentioned that they they might be uh, the kaiju might be broadcasting signals or songs as we might call them um, kaiju songs sung through the universe in the radio frequencies um, and it could be they could, might be singing about uh, where there's a place to get food and then you said or they might be singing about sort of sort of a mating call and I could imagine these two things coming together because it's sort of like right you know it's like hey let's go to dinner right so let us yeah. meet me. <laughs>
1: I just dinner, discovered
0: but- this blue planet. It looks really tasty. Meet me for dinner at Earth. And, or this thing they, they, they I've listened to the radio, I've listened to the radio broadcast from this planet, and they seem to call it Earth. So let's go check it out. It looks delicious. And then I could imagine Jody Foster from Contact, uh listening through the uh radio telescope and and it takes them a long time but finally they use some ai you know supercomputer to decode the signals and and they understand the message which is hey dinner at earth dinner of earth and now we have a story <laughs> happening so what happens next
1: well here's my biologist asterisk <laughs> i don't know if these creatures would survive very well on earth i mean right. so my they survive okay on the station for the purposes of story, at least when I have written it. Right. But think about like the blobfish, if you've ever seen that—the big, that like gross, like pink fish thing from I like the this. super deep. Yeah, it's, it's it a real thing. Like a, yeah, it's like it's a real thing. But the problem is, it doesn't look like a blob when it's down there. It's the decompression that causes it to look like a big ah. pink wet blob because it's kind of exploded a little. Um, so. organisms don't really deal with pressure differences Mm -hmm, too mm -hmm. well. I'd imagine that life in space has to adapt to maybe create its own pressure system. And maybe that's my biases being an organism that lives in an atmosphere. Um, Like maybe we'll discover there is some actual system that lets organisms survive without, you know, in a vacuum, but... Unless it's like an algae bear thing. Sorry, I got way off track about how you can. Sorry to the listeners. <laughs> Tardigrades or algae bears, you can. They can survive vacuum, but oh. I don't think they're alive while they're vacuum. Like, right? Yeah. Like, I think that they kind of go. Yeah, I think yeah. they go into some sort of stasis. Right. Uh, so if yeah, so you know, what? maybe the kaiju could live on Earth but they are in some kind of tardigrade stasis as they're just, you know, putting out some kaiju song and floating through the universe and then tardigrade rehydrate on Earth. Yeah, well, you could have oh, a, a Godzilla that's from space situation.
0: Or I was imagining, it's kind of fun to imagine that, um, that it, let's say they live in the vacuum of space, and that's, that's their natural environment. Um, in a way, they would need almost like reverse spacesuits. They would need spacesuits that maintain a vacuum so that they could go visit a place where there's air.
1: Yeah, which was sort of my joke about, like, if if they came to Earth and then experienced atmospheric pressure, would they just, like, instantly crumple? Right. Which would be truly bizarre and also kind of funny because it would just negate itself. Like, you see, like, Space Godzilla coming in, you know, floating (laughs) past the ISS, and then it just crumples like a tin can the instant it actually hits Tokyo is kind of funny and gross. (laughs) But, well, that's the thing. Like, it's thinking about life in space does completely break my brain on a lot of levels because yeah. there are ways that you can hack it. But then if you try to apply that back to earth, you have to do an extra jump. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And also in the case of uh, tin can space, Godzilla kind of messy. Yeah.
0: Nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, well, I just love that idea of the ending that, you know, uh, uh, one of the great, this is max, massive spoiler alert, but it's a story that was written what, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So uh, <laughs> the War of the Worlds. And um, there's a punchline there that, it you know, the, the Martians ultimately can't survive on Earth because of the mi- microbes. Basically, they get disease um, mm-hmm. and they die. So I love the idea of the kaiju finally, they, f- throughout the whole movie, we've got Jeff Goldblum and we've got Jodie Foster and we've got all the stars of all the science fiction movies in this story. And they're all scared because the kaiju are coming. They're going to eat the earth. These huge creatures are coming. And then suddenly they just, as soon as the kaiju arrive, they hit the atmosphere and they just burst like Macy's Thanksgiving Day balloons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... It that is kind of thing. Like if, if we just suddenly discovered that there's, you know, monsters hurtling towards earth. Yeah. yeah, We should prepare. I feel like we should, that's probably a good thing to do. Yeah. But also who's to say they can necessarily survive here.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now they, uh, as our final act here, as we turn towards wrapping up, um, they would, uh, let's say that, you know, they did, they did decide to come to earth, right. Um, for whatever reason. So therefore, they 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 get they understand the deal um they know not to touch the atmosphere they know they have to stay
1: yeah in or orbit. maybe these things hop planets all the time or whatever you know right
0: how might they they would have to probably develop some kind of technology um for um getting what they need so what you're saying is what they want is they want radioactive material is that right so they see earth as a source of radioactive material they're not actually interested in the people so much
1: right yeah Yeah. So I'd imagine one that these guys can probably, they probably have some just like ambient radiation soaking ability. Like they can feed Mm. off of like, like I believe the fungi in Chernobyl do it by a process that's very similar to photosynthesis Mm. where they can use the, the radiation essentially bounce energy and collect that much like plants bounce a photon what and does then that, use what that energy. That tell us about that. I am recalling this from the far depths of Biology <laughs> right. 202 in college, so I can give you more of an overview if I look stuff up and remember like what this is. But no, that's all right. Basically, so, it's not just like they they directly eat it, but right. I'd imagine there's probably two things they could go for: one, ambient radiation, like right. that sort of photosynthesis thing. Oh, I see. Which they you, get I, enough I, of I, in space, and I then also some yeah. amount of consuming radioactive material. Right. As a fuel store, so they can continue to use that sort of photosynthesis photosynthetic it's, process right. over time.
0: Right. So here's another fun ending. I can imagine they come and they uh, we they have to figure out a way to get. But once the once um, maybe they they start circling the Earth and they're they clearly want they're cl- clearly attracted to. Maybe they're less intelligent. Not, not, they don't have a technology, but they come and they there's a, you know a swarm of them gathers more and more are coming to Earth and they're all orbiting the earth, they're hovering around, they're looking hungrily at the earth, and the people on the earth um, are trying to figure out what's going on, and they realize that perhaps the, uh, the kaiju are here like moths to a flame, mm. you know, there's some, for some reason there's right away, and then it could be, and this is a real tie-in to the movies of the week, um, uh, perhaps this is because uh, earth uh, uh, has started exploding nuclear weapons, right? And this is a oh. classic 1950s sci-fi kind of story. So um, it's it's at the time of uh, Oppenheimer <laughs> and uh, we're testing nuclear weapons and the Russians blowing up all kinds of nuclear weapons. And that's what attracted the kaiju, which in fact is what actually did give birth to the Godzilla story, right? Go- Godzilla mm-hmm. is, the origin of Godzilla is that, or well, maybe more nuclear power is what, well, first of all, Japan suffered, the you know, was the victim of the attack, uh, the nuclear weapon. Um, and then they had... Uh, Nuclear power is, is an issue, and so the idea was that all this radiation under the ocean created Godzilla, right, or gave rise to Godzilla because of the the, the radiation. So you've you've created a mass. I think it goes back to a little bit more ancient Japanese myths of you've basically created a massive imbalance in the ecosystem, and therefore mm-hmm. the gods are upset, or you've, you've angered the gods, and uh, so Godzilla comes up. So these creatures are hovering around the earth, and. Uh, here's a, a nice ending to this story would be uh, in a very 1950s ending. We decide, Oh, we have to give them all our nuclear weapons to feed them and get them. To that
1: leave. is a very fifties <laughs> ending. Yeah.
0: Like day. The earth stood still.
1: Yeah. We just lure them out to space with a bunch of like really fast nukes. Yeah. yeah and they all yeah. leave. Bruce Willis
0: rides them. a nuke into the mouth <laughs> of the kaiju.
1: Yeah. That or, sounds or, about,
0: it. or more contemporary, uh, uh, more, more contemporary than the Bruce Willis example would be, uh, was it Dennis Quaid in Independence Day? Rides, you know, flies his plane right into the center of the, uh, of the mothership. Uh, so, how would that, lastly, how would they, uh, they for, for the kaiju, it would be a happy thing. They would have to say, thanks for all the fish and goodbye, because they, they eat the nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you think they would uh, swallow the nuclear weapons whole like vitamins?
1: Sure. (laughs) Let's be level. There's none of this that's grounded that much in reality. Yeah. uh, Today, so sure. Why not? They fucking swallow them whole like vitamins. Yeah.
0: So now to 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 close out, um, I think it's always fun. One thing I like is the writing of the process of writing science fiction was really one of the main inspirations for this show because I I just love that idea that you ask. To write a science fiction story, you have to ask a crazy question. You know, kind of imagine something. What if this? And then what's fun is if you're going to do hard science fiction, um, you have to now go out and learn a lot about certain subjects so that you can try to create a rationale and a mechanism for how this idea you just came up with could happen. So if this was the beginning of a hard science fiction show uh, story, what subjects would you have to know? What What would be your list of research topics? then you would have to go on.
1: Yeah. A lot more biology and physics. Definitely Mm, a mm. lot more understanding of how, like essentially how we're scanning the universe for RF signals, how essentially our fiction SETI can track these things. Yeah. It also is a thing that I've noticed a little goofily is that like, if if this is being presented as new in your story, i.e. the characters that are running into this are the first people to do it, you probably want to have a character or characters who are experts in some of those things. Uh, Elsewise, there is no way to really introduce that information. Yep. So, for example, my character in this story with the monster kaiju is somebody who builds mechs. They're an engineer. So there's not really any biology in part because it's not needed. The kaiju are just a vehicle for a story about creation and like self identity and creation as an extension of that. Um, So therefore it's much more about the character being an engineer and building this thing as much as they're building themselves than it is about a gigantic monster that they're going to be fighting at the end of the story.
0: Essentially, there's a character, a character story inside. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, but the other things I've written, some of them are hard hard sci-fi. In which case, yeah, there are biologists who are fundamentally studying a thing, and then I had to do a bunch of fun xenobiology to try to you know figure out the alienness of of what I was working with.
0: Yeah. Now, if you're um, if you start publishing a lot of books, would you publish? The non-hard sci-fi and the hard sci-fi under the same name, um, or would you somehow separate them?
1: All of my fiction right now is under the same name, and I plan to keep it that way. Cool. Uh, Because for the most part, like you know, my short stuff is science fiction of varying lengths, and then I've been in the background of all of this working on a novel that's fantasy. Oh, they're all guided by a lot of science, and so like even the fantasy novel, like the magicians have to deal with entropy. Yeah. And they're very good chemists for reasons that are related to the way the magic works. Yeah. But at the same time, like it's I I just use the same name because it's it's my writing. Granted, my my pub my science publishing, my actual like I am a scientist publishing in journals, that's a different name or a different like, you know, Spelling contrivance of it. Oh, interesting. So, um,
0: you do, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a name
1: and a. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's basically still my name, but it's just right. like, you know, I use initials for one. Right, right. And like, scientific publishing is always just like, it's either first name and then last name or just first initial and then last. Uh-huh. Uh, last name, depending on the journal. Right. Um, so, I do, in a way, separate them based on that. Uh, but as far as like se- separating. You know, hard sci-fi from fantasy from anything else than that. It's just fiction,
0: right, right, right. And there is a tradition of that somewhat in um, science fiction. I feel like Gene Wolfe might kind of do that. Like he definitely does fantasy, but he he has science fiction woven into his fantasy novels in a beautiful way.
1: I think that they're they're sort of the same thing in a lot of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like whether or not it's like spaceships. Ships, Phil, um, or (laughs) dragons, you know, essentially you're still making a lot of leaps in how you're, you know, from what reality currently is. And I think both of them require that innate, like, suspension of disbelief that you kind of just have to have when you read one of these stories. And then how much you suspend your disbelief depends on does the story pan out to be hard science fiction or soft science fiction. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And and often I think it's just how much time does the author spend in talking about the mechanisms of things or how things work? Hard sci-fi. And it's funny because
1: the worst hard sci-fi in my experience is the ones that over-explain and get it wrong. Oh. Like I'm reading, I read a lot of short fiction. It's great for when you're waiting for the subway because you've got like 10 minutes (laughs) and then there's like, you know, a 10-minute story or something like that. And I was reading a lot of old Nebula winners. So I have, like, a compendium of those. And there are some stories in, like, the 80s where, like, they're they're trying to... It, I, I just can't read it. It takes me out so much because the hard science fiction is just so wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, they mm-hmm. try to give you an explanation of something. But I'm like, the body having more electricity doesn't cure cancer. So, therefore, my ability to engage with this story is, like, gone. I cannot assume... Like I, I just can't get into it because the base thing that they're using is their hard science fiction is just nonsense. Interesting. So was
0: it correct? It, it's at a fine line to walk. The article was written, or, or you mean they just didn't get? They just made this up.
1: I assume they must have made it up, but yeah. I, at the same time, I don't know. Right. It, it kind of jives with like you know thoughts of like imbalances and things, mm. but at the same time, I, I couldn't tell you the state of the research then to tell you whether or not it was close to accurate.
0: Yeah. Actually, it just struck me that I feel like Dune, uh, Frank Herbert's books, is actually a pretty good example of uh, hard science fiction and fantasy mixed. I mean, I think that's where, like, the whole spiritual aspect of Dune, this is not a spoiler anyway, but sort of, um, there's a lot of mystical elements that are a little more like, fan- you might have in, in fantasy wizards and kings yeah. and queens and things like that, which is, Star Wars takes a lot from Dune, obviously, but uh, this blend of spiritual and also sort of but but dune is much more hard sci-fi than star Wars. star wars really is not hard sci-fi by any means they really don't
1: oh yeah well sci- star wars is like a space fantasy
0: space total space fantasy yeah space western space opera right is what they call it mm-hmm. um cool well well thank you this is an uh, amazing thing and uh again what what is your what name do you go by in science fiction so people can follow that and uh i'll just say that by the way this today was inspired by your uh, new story, um, which has just been published, and the link is in the show notes. And tell people the title of the story.
1: Yeah, so my short story is called A Sword Between the Stars, uh, and it's in uh, Luminescent Machinations, Queer Tales of Monumental Invention. The whole anthology is about like like mecha stories, stories with giant robots essentially in Uh some way or another, um, so I had written this thing, and then saw that they were compiling this anthology, and I was like, "This is amazing! Um, I also have a queer mecca science fiction story for you." It was uh-huh. great. Um, and the the name I use is basically just my name. It's my initials, GM Panesia. Um, uh-huh. I'm going the way of the NK Jemison on it. Um, yeah. You or JK Rowling. Th- yeah. Yeah, I'd prefer not to associate myself <laughs> with that, but <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, hopefully I'll be able to share some other cool publishing news soon. Like yeah. I said, just waiting on contract stuff because I assume they they sort of finish that up right when they figure out what what issue they're going to be publishing it in.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool, very cool. Um, for those of you who are Patreon supporters, you will be getting a, our extended episode, uh, bonus content only for Patreon listeners. It's called the Post Show, and in the Post Show, also known as the half <laughs> the after hour, <laughs> the after. <laughs> after party and the happy hour. I just put those together Ooh. or the post show. Um, uh, we're going to hear more about Gabby, uh, Gabby's science fiction career and how one does both science and science fiction. Uh, so that if you want to hear more about that and you're not a Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash what the if and check it out. There's different tiers. It's not expensive. You can join and um, get, uh, get this bonus content. We'd love for you to be able to hear it. And uh, thank you again. Thank you to Josh, by the way, for sending in that incredible artwork uh, oh, yeah. inspired by our recent show. And so, again, I throw down the gauntlet, if that's the proper term, to all of you. Um, and, you know, we have these AI art programs out there. So you don't, you know, you can just type it into mid-journey or something or like that if you wanted. There's something, some phrase or image that happened in the show. But if you're an artist and you want to draw it yourself, awesome. Send those to us. Um, you can do that via our website, whattheif.com, You can contact us. Or if you're a Patreon supporter, you can do it right through there. Um so uh Gabby, would you uh do you have anything you uh, I was gonna say, do you have anything you want to plug? But well, we've plugged your story.
1: This was rather the entire episode was my whole or less episode a plug. was a story.
0: <laughs> so do you want to help people understand why we now need to go through a closing ceremony?
1: Yeah, much as we prepared by putting on all of our PPE, our protective equipment to go through the wormhole, we have to get back out because uh, now we are on this alternate earth watching the sky fill with Kaiju who are salivating over all of our, <laughs> our nuclear power plants. <laughs> and we cannot help but stare up at them and shout the name of the show. What!
0: what? Ah!
1: Ah!
0: Thank you, space-faring Godzilla overlords. We'll, uh, we hope you enjoy. Would you, would you like any condiments, uh, any salt, pepper, <laughs> with your nuclear power plant? Enjoy. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening. Matt will be back from his uh, history of well, We're going to find out what, how the battle went in the history of science. And uh, we'll all see you next week. Thanks for listening.